Welcome, I'm Nestor Flores, the pastor of Dayspring Church in Mission Hills, California. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast. I want to invite you to learn more about Dayspring Church by visiting our website, dayspringmh.org. We trust that if you open your heart, God will speak to you and you'll know how to live a life with God at the center that will result in a blessed life. This message will inspire, build your faith, and help you to know God better. Enjoy the message. All right, well, good morning, everyone. Good morning, good morning, good morning. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Uh, last week, I wasn't here. Last week, I woke up with a massive headache. I was telling Susie, because uh, she suffers from, uh, from allergies as well. Last week, uh, you know, when it rains, the pollen goes all over, and, and I just woke up with a massive headache, and, and uh, I called Pastor Nestor and said, I'm not going to be able to make it to church, and so I watched it online. Um, you know, being online and being here, there's nothing like being in God's house. There's nothing like being with God's people. There's nothing like worshiping with God's redeemed people, singing songs, and, and so I, I missed... Uh, I missed the service last week. I was sick, but I'm glad to be here in God's house. I, but for those who don't know me, my name is Manola. I'm one of the pillar pastors here at Dayspring Church. And, of course, we want to welcome you, and we want to thank you for making Dayspring your first destination. Uh, I have the privilege, the honor to come before you and stand here to bring God's word. Uh, our pastor is not with us. He is, uh, as many of you know, he's running the, the L.A. Marathon. And uh, I've been tracking him. I've been tracking him, and he's at a phenomenal pace. Uh, he's slated to finish at 10.51 in the morning. So God bless our pastor. He's running like a gazelle. <laughs> he's running pretty fast. I was supposed to run with him this past couple of marathons, but I'm still nursing an injury. And uh, I hope to be back uh, in full force in a couple of months. Praise God. Well, we are in a series uh, called Unity. Amen. Unity. Unity. And these days we are talking about unity. You know, unity is the, uh, is the soul of fellowship. If you destroy unity, you rip apart the heart of marriage and family and church or any organization. And we've heard it before. United we stand. Divided we fall. You know, on one occasion Jesus Christ was, was uh, casting out demons. He was... He was casting out demons. And they accused Jesus of doing this in the name of, of Beelzebub. And Jesus Christ said, if a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. You know, unity is the essence. Unity is the center of all relationship. Unity fosters community, brotherhood, and companionship. Unity promotes well-being, drives advancements, and leads to success. And for this reason, the Lord has called us to a life of unity. Now, unity is a powerful force. You know, Peanuts, you know, Peanuts and uh, Charlie Brown, Lucy and Linus and Snoopy. In a Peanuts cartoon, Lucy demanded that Linus change the TV channels, threatening him with, with her fist if he didn't. But what makes you think that you can walk right in here and take over? Asked Linus. These five fingers, said Lucy, individually they're nothing, 
But when I curl them together like this, it makes a single unit. They form a weapon, and that's a terrible thing to behold. Oh, which channel do you want, said Linus. And turning away, he looks at his fingers and says, Why can't you guys be like, like, why can't you guys get organized like that, Charlie and Snoopy? You know, unity is a powerful force. So we've been using 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10 there in your outlines. So let's read it. It says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you perfectly united in mind and in thought. You know, the Apostle Paul, who had founded this church, he had founded this church in, the sec in his second missionary trip, and he had, he had gotten word of, of the troubles and the struggles that were going on in the Corinthian church. This church was in disarray. This church was, was not united. It wasn't unified. It was about, uh, this church was about to, 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 uh, to, to collapse because there was, there was divisions in the church. And the Apostle Paul clearly cared for the Corinthian church. No other church that Paul had founded gave him so much cause to worry and suffering like this church did. Now, there were problems in the Corinthian church. Some Christians were tolerating incest. They were abusing the spiritual gifts. Some Christians in the church of Corinth were excusing sexual immorality. In the Corinthian church, some Christians were misguided about marriage and singleness. Some affluent Christians... Uh, were abusing the Lord's Supper by marginalizing the poor. In other words, they were only, when they would take the Lord's Supper, they would only invite the wealthy. Some were denying that God will uh, resurrect, uh, will bodily resurrect. And so there were so much problems in the Corinthian church. And this Corinthian church was made up primarily of, of, of Gentiles, Greeks, and Romans. And the church at Corinth was divided they had divided loyalty, different leaders. And so the Apostle Paul rejects that disunity and he tells the church members to focus on Christ. And that's what we ought to do this morning, is to focus on Christ. Now we just, uh, we just ended a pandemic or COVID. And if there's something that the pandemic taught us is how divided we really are. Divided. You know, those who, the Democrats versus the Republicans and those who wear masks and those who don't wear masks and those who are vaccinated and those who are not vaccinated. I mean, we are so divided. And the sad thing is that it has crept into the church. When our focus should solely be on Christ and Christ alone. Now, I wasn't going to say this, but I'm going to say it anyways. You know, I used to vote Republican. But I changed my status. I'm now an independent. Because my allegiance is not to any party. My allegiance is solely to Christ and Christ alone. You know, the church, the church when it started, it started with power and authority. Jesus Christ said, thou art Peter. Peter means little rock. 
But he says, upon this rock, speaking about himself, or big rock, or huge rock, he said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so when the church started on the day of Pentecost, the church started with power, it started with authority. The Bible tells us that Jesus told his disciples to go to, to Jerusalem and do not leave there until they've been anointed or blessed from on high. And they gathered on the day of Pentecost. And you know what the Bible tells us? The Bible tells us that they were all in one mind and in one accord. And when they were in one mind and in one accord, when they were unified, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit fell upon that church, blessed that church, hallelujah, and they all began to speak in tongues as the Holy Ghost gave them the utterance to speak. If you want a strong church, if you want a strong marriage, if you want a strong relationship with God, you need unity. Praise God. But unity doesn't come by accident. Unity must be created. Unity is not obtained by uniformity. You know, the family of God is a, is a diversity of people gifted to serve each other for the sake of a of a maturity in faith. Though we are all one in Christ, God doesn't erase our unique gifts, our abilities, our personal preferences, or other distinctions like gender or age. He also doesn't erase our ethnic or cultural heritage. And the book of Revelation records a striking account of the last days when the Bible tells us that all nations and tribes and tongues will be worshiping Jesus. Praise God. In heaven there won't be homogeneous people. Praise God. We will all be glorified. And we will all glorify the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We will all glorify Him who is exalted and lifted up. We will all glorify Jesus Christ. Praise God. And that's what unifies us is our love for Jesus who gave His all for us. Can someone say amen? So unity is created in six ingredients. And, and I'm just going to go over them. I think our pastor already talked about them. The first ingredient that pastor talked about is the ingredient that produces unity is love. And you can write this down. Love. Love. Love is the strongest unifying factor of all. Why? Well, because love is a foundation on, all, on which all relationships are built. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 tells us, so now faith, now hope, I don't think this is in your outline, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these three, he says, is love. One of God's greatest attributes is love. 1 John chapter 4 verse 8 tells us that God is love. Love is God's greatest attributes. We all know John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And that's the hope of every believer. Amen? Love is the core, an aspect of God's character and God's person. So pastor talked about this. The second ingredient that he talked about is, is that, that it pr produces unity. The second ingredient is that it produces unity is our, 
And he talked about this, our identity. Now, identity produces unity because it implies I am part of a whole. Now, the third ingredient that produces unity is purpose. Purpose. You can write that down. Unity is collectivity. Collectivity, right? In other words, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a group of different people, but with one common interest. In other words, we are a collective group of people who work together to collaborate on cooperative goals. And what's our goal here on earth? It is the expansion of the kingdom of God. In this past uh, winter season, we've had the most snow that we've ever had. You realize that we had more snow in the San Bernardino Mountains than we had in New York, Chicago, or Utah? They recorded 10 feet of snow in the San Bernardino Mountains. Snow's a beautiful thing. I don't know if you've been to the snow. You like to slide and make snowmen and throw things at each other. Snow's a wonderful thing, but it can also be a powerful force. Snowflakes are one of the most Fragile things. But just look at what they can do when they stick together. When they stick together, I mean, it is a powerful source. What am I trying to tell you? I'm trying to tell you that when we are unified, when we stick together as a church, when you stick together as a family, when you stick together with your friends, hallelujah, when, you, when there is unity, hallelujah, there is no devil in hell that can come against you. Because you are unified. There is unity. Praise God. Unity is everyone having a collective purpose. Now the fourth ingredient that produces unity is sacrifice. I don't know if the pastor talked about this last week, but sacrifice. Sacrifice means to surrender or to give up for the sake of something else. Now to create sacrifice or to create unity, it requires sacrifice. Now, look at what the Bible says. There in your outline, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. It says, work hard to live together as one by the help of the Holy Spirit. Then there will be peace. I like what the New Living Translation says. It. It's there in your outline. It says, make every effort to keep yourself united in spirit, binding yourselves together in peace. In other words, unity requires sacrificing the self for what is ours. Disunity enters when I focus on what I want. In other words, I'm being selfish or narcissistic, right? To focus on what I want. You know, I, when I came to, to Day Spring Church, I came from a very Pentecostal Spanish church. And I love the Spanish songs. And when I came here, you know, some of the songs were just different. I didn't like them. And I'd go home and I'd look them up and then I'd, I'd play them in my car. And it was just different. I, I remember telling my wife, oh, you know, these songs are a little different. They're weird. They're, they're strange. <laughs> you know, why can't they sing Alabaré? <laughs> why can't they sing these other songs? But you know, it wasn't about me. It was about God. And these songs that they sang, and, and 
back there in, in Panorama were songs that glorified God. I wanted to glorify myself by singing the songs that took me back to my days. But as we sang, as what Susie sang, it's not about me. It's about Jesus because he needs to be the center of it all. Amen? He needs to be the center of it all. You know, a united marriage is one where two of you are constantly sacrificing for each other. And married people say amen. You know, to some, sacrifice may, sacrifice may sound awful. But it's one of the purest ways to show love to someone. You know, saying, I love you, it's, it's good and it's necessary. But giving of yourself, like your time after time, is proof that you really mean what you say. Let me give you an example. Cooking dinner every night when you're tired is a sacrifice. Amen? Getting up two hours early each morning to earn the income for your family or working overtime is a sacrifice. You know what the Bible tells us? The Bible tells us wives, honor your husbands. Another translation says, obey your husbands. And then it says, husbands, love your wives. You know why it tells us to obey? Because it's hard for women to obey. And you know why it tells men to love their wives? Because it's hard for us men to love. But you sacrifice. Praise God. So unity requires sacrificing my preferences for our purpose. We often say things like, I prefer things to be done that way. I like that more. And we get upset when what we prefer is not done. And by focusing on my preferences, I'm, I'm neglecting what's best for everyone. And so to find unity, the self must be sacrificed for a collective benefit. Unity requires sacrificing my will so that God's will can be done. And so Christ modeled this for us when he says, Father, not my will, but your will be done. And so Christ sacrificed his life so that his church would find eternal life. So the fifth thing, and I want to focus on this, the fifth ingredient that produces unity is spiritual maturity. And this is where I start my sermon. <laughs> Promise I won't be long. Spiritual maturity. And look at what the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 3 to 5. Sarah, in your outline. It says, you are still worldly. For, for since there is jealousy and quarrel among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What, after all, is Paulos, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants, though who you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned each task. You know, the Corinthian church, as I mentioned, had been, 
had a divided loyalty to different leaders. And so the Apostle Paul rejected that disunity in the Corinthian church by telling the church members that they should focus solely on Jesus Christ. In other words, what the Apostle Paul was telling them is, is that the individual leaders should only point them to Christ. Now, in the Corinthian church, there were fans, right? Like we have fans, right? Dodger fans. How many Dodger fans we got here? How many Raider fans? Don't say anything. No, we got fans, and we root for those fans, right? We wear their jerseys. And in the Corinthian church was no exception. There were some who were following Cephas, and there were some who were following Apollos, and there were some who were following Paul, and they became uh, fans of them. And there was a small group in the Corinthian church that were actually following Jesus Christ. But they became fans of these people. They were followers of these people. They wanted to be like these people. And Paul rebukes them and tells them, did Paul die for you? Or was Paul crucified for you? You know, I don't know uh, how many of you remember this, but I'm old enough to remember this, that uh, years ago, Gatorade ran a, a campaign encouraging people to be like Mike. Anybody remember that? I want to be like Mike, or am I the only one? Now, Mike, Michael Jordan, right? He was the NBA basketball player, legend, right? And we wear his shoes. And the phrase, I want to be like Mike, was everywhere. Posted on billboards and commercials and kids and adults. They all sang it. I want to be like Mike. I want to be like Mike. I found myself singing that song, Brother Steve. I want to be like Mike. Praise God. Anybody remember that? Well, I don't want to be like Mike. I want to be like Jesus. I said, I want to be like Jesus. Anybody in this room want to be like Jesus? Praise God. That's why John the Baptist could say, you or he, talking about Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. You know, spiritual maturity is achieved through becoming more and more and more and more like Jesus Christ. When we become mature, hallelujah, we are becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter if you've been in church for 10 or 20 years. That doesn't make you mature. What makes you mature is becoming more and more and more like Jesus Christ. Can someone say amen? You know, fights and, and disputes and divisions are signs of immaturity. Quarrels and fighting, they cause separation. And immaturity produces disunity. But spiritual maturity produces unity. So you may ask, how does spiritual maturity produce unity? Well, I'm glad you asked. How does spiritual maturity? Well, I'm going to show you three ways. First, focus on what we have in common. And you can write that down. Focus on what we have in common and not in our differences. So what do we have in common? Well, look at what the Bible tells us here in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4. It says, and they're going to put it up. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4, it says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all, in all. But to each one of the grace has been given of Christ apportioned. 
Now that's a lot of ones. That's a lot of ones. Now what do we have in common? I'll tell you what we have in common, church. You know what we have in common is that we all serve Jesus Christ. That we all have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. Praise God. That we all have been saved by his sacrifice. That we all have been purchased by his precious blood. That's what we have in common. And when Jesus Christ comes back for his church, let me tell you, he's not coming back for the blacks and he's not coming back for the whites and he's not coming back for the Europeans and he's not coming back for the Latinos and he's not coming back for those who are masked and unmasked, vaccinated, unvaccinated. When Jesus Christ comes back for his church, he's coming back for a people that has been called of his name, that has been purchased by his blood. Praise God. That's what we have in common, that we have all been saved by the power of God that we all have the Holy Spirit that we've been purchased with his blood that's what we have in comedy and so when disunity answers we don't appreciate our differences we shouldn't allow our differences to tear us apart but make us stronger selfishness tears us apart but unity unifies us Look at what Romans chapter 14 verse 19 says. It says, work for the things that make peace and help each other become what? Stronger Christians. The Living Bible Virgin says it this way. It says, so then let us aim for harmony in the church and try to build each other up. It doesn't say to tear people up. It says to build people up. Amen? We all have different gifts and we all have different talents that we bring to the church. And when we bring those different talents and those different gifts, hallelujah, it becomes, uh, uh, we become one in harmony. Praise God. And what is harmony? Harmony is working together. Look at what the Apostle Paul says. In Romans chapter 12, verse 7, might not be up there. Paul says that, that when we embrace each other's differences, we will build, we will be built up. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 7, he says, if it's serving, let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. Romans chapter 12 and verse 8, if it's encouraging, let him encourage. If it's giving, let him give generously. If it's leading, let him lead with diligence. If it's showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Praise God. So the second spiritual maturity is set realistic expectations. You can write that down. Set realistic expectations. Now, we all have expectations, right? All of us have ex expectations. The young man that wants to get married or the young woman that ha wants to get married, they have certain expectations when they go into marriage. And just let me say in a parenthesis, right, when, you know, when you remember when you were dating, you know, you would open the door, the, you would open the door for your girlfriend. But now that you're married, the only thing that you open is the jar of mayonnaise because it's hard for them to open it up. Remember when he used to bring you flowers? Now he brings you your laundry. <laughs> I 
And women, remember, man, when you were dating your wife, she smelled like a petal of roses. But now she smells like Ben Gay. Because we have certain expectations, right, when we get into marriage. I remember when, when I was a pastor, I used to, uh, I used to give uh, marriage counseling, and, and I used to ask them a question. Without using the word love, why do you want to get married? Oh, man, you'd be amazed at the answers they would give me. Well, I, he's going to take care of me. I remember this one lady said, oh, he's so cute. That's why I want to marry him. Well, his cuteness is not going to put food on the table. His cuteness is not going to pay the rent. His cuteness is not going to pay the mortgage. And we, we have these certain expectations, right, when we go into marriage. Oh, he's, he's going to take care of me. He's going to buy me a big house. And man, they go into marriage. Yeah, she's going to cook me a a fine dinner, and when I get home, she's going to massage my feet. <laughs> Top ramen. <laughs> because we, 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 all of us have certain expectations. You know, we, we have expectations of our leaders or our pastors, right? We all have expectations of our pastor. You know, someone said that the perfect pastor preaches exactly 10 minutes. He's 29 years old and has 40 years experience, and above all, he's handsome. You know, we have certain expectations. We have expectations of our church. And the problem is when those expectations are not realistic. In other words, expecting the church to be perfect is unrealistic. There is no perfect church. You know why? Because that would require perfect people. And if you find a perfect church, don't join that church because you'll make it imperfect. You know, expecting pastors to never make mistakes is unrealistic. They're humans just like us. I remember when I was pastoring a church, and, and I was feeling sick. We had this place at the back of the church, and, and um, I was feeling sick, and I, I put my head down. I walked out of church, and I put my head down. And brother came, came, after, came to church, uh, came to the back, and he says, Pastor, what's wrong? And I said, well, I'm not feeling well. He said, but you're the pastor. You know? Expecting your spouse to behave impeccably is unrealistic. She's not perfect. Expecting your husband to be perfect or, or expecting your husband to behave impeccably is unrealistic. He's not perfect. My wife is close to perfection, but she's not perfect. <laughs> Why? Because we are all imperfect. We all have weaknesses, and we all sin. And the Apostle Paul, the great Apostle Paul, you know what he said? He said, I am the chief sinner. I am the worst of the worst. The only thing that is perfect 
is God himself and his word. And Psalm 119 says that nothing is perfect except the word of God. A church can be healthy, but not perfect. And some look at an ideal church, but I want to tell you that it doesn't exist. There are healthy churches, but not perfect churches. Churches that, that always seek to be the best they can be. We are not perfect. But here at Dayspring, we always strive to work to be better. We are all different. And we should love one another. Look at what Romans chapter 14 verse 1 says. Accept other believers who are weak in the faith and don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. Now Paul says that this is the vital key to unity. Recognize that there are different levels of growth. But don't let those weaknesses divide us. Amen? The third, and you can write this down, is offer encouragement not criticism. Offer encouragement and not criticism. Look at Proverbs chapter 15, 31 to 33. It's not in your outline, but I'm going to read it to you. It says, if you listen to constructive criticism, now, now there's different types of criticism, right? Uh, constructive criticism. Now, now, if you're going to give someone a, a criticism, do it privately, right? But Proverbs chapter 15, verse 31 to 33 says, If you listen to constructive criticism, you will be at home among the wise. If you reject discipline, you will only harm yourself. But if you listen to correction, you will grow in understanding. Verse 33 says, Fear of the Lord teaches us wisdom. Humility precedes honor. You know, we, we live in a world full of people who criticize everything and everybody. You know, a few, uh, a few years ago, a few years ago, there was a, a brother in the church. Is he here? Let's see. No, he's not here. <laughs> so I can talk about it. <laughs> a few years ago, after church, a, a brother came to me after church, and he said, after church, is that redundant? He came to me after church, and he said, Manolo, he says, I just want to apologize. And I thought, what is he apologizing for? He says, I, I just want to say I'm sorry. I know what he was talking about. He says, you know, I, when, when, uh, when I first saw you, he never met me. He says, but when I first saw you, I thought you were arrogant and conceited. You know, I, I thought you were unapproachable. I thought you were weird. And I just didn't like it. I said, yeah, well, maybe I come across like that sometimes. He says, and I, I want to apologize because I had that, 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 that image of you and, and I talked about you behind your back and I, I told other brothers to stay away from you. So I wondered why they didn't serve me at that cafe. You know, we, we live in a world where people are, who criticize are everywhere. But what the world needs is people who encourage and inspire others. Can I get a witness? That's what this world needs. You know, the Weight Watchers founder, John Needich, she was a 214-pound homemaker, and she was desperate to lose weight. And so she went to New York City Department of Health where she was given a diet devised by Dr. Norman Jolliffe. And two months later, 
discouraged about the 50 pounds still to go, she invited six overweight friends home to share the diet and to talk about how to stay on it. Today, 20 years later, 1 million members attend 25,000 Weight Watchers meetings in 24 countries every week. And so she was asked how she was able to help people take control of their lives. And she tells a story that when she was a teenager, she used to cross a park where she saw mothers gossiping while the toddlers, the toddlers sat on their swings with no one to push them. I'd give them a push, says Nidish. And you know what happens when you push a kid and swing? Well, pretty soon he's pumping it. He's doing it himself. And she says, that's my role in life. I'm here to give others a push. That is what truly helps others. Be that person. Give someone a push, just not off the cliff. Encourage someone. Be that positive person in their life. Speaking positively to elevate people, not to bring people down, but to elevate people. Can someone say amen? Look at what the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 21. The wise are known for what? Their understanding. And pleasant words are what? Persuasive. In other words, the sweeter your words, the more persuasive they will be. The harsher the words, the less they will have desired results. The words, the words that you talk either are negative or positive. They will uplift or they will bring someone down. You see, harsh words or harsh and negative words divide. But as, as the Bible tells us, but sweet ones unify. Amen? The sixth ingredient and the last ingredient is forgiveness. You can write that down. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is truly a Christian value. And oh, how difficult it is for us to forgive. I think forgiveness is probably one of the hardest things that we can do. Someone say amen. You know, forgiveness is not for the weak. Being able to forgive those who have wronged you is a mark of spiritual strength. It's a mark of spiritual strength and confidence. You know, when you forgive, you grow. Your heart begins to heal. Your back begins to straighten. Your eyes clear up so that you can see the road ahead of you. Anger is a spiritual sickness. And when you forgive, you come alive. Now consider the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not up there, but I'm going to read it to you. In Luke chapter 6, verse 37, he says, Forgive, and you will be forgiven. And on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said it very plainly. He said, if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive their sins. 
Look at what the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32. It's not up there. He says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ God forgave you. If God forgave you, why can't you forgive others? And if God forgave you, why can't you forgive yourself? Amen? And he said this very similarly in Colossians chapter 3, verse 13. He says, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. Now when Peter, a man who knew the experience and the value of forgiveness, wrote his first epistle in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. And he summed it up this way. He says, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. And there's another way to say it, and it comes from the love chapter. Love uh, chapter is, is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And, and, and the Apostle Paul describes this, this, the greatest virtue like this. Paul described love as that love keeps no records of wrong. And this little phrase deserves a closer examination. You know, Eugene Peterson, who wrote the book, The Message, says it this way. He says that love doesn't keep score of sins of others. Love doesn't keep the score because love has a bad memory. It finds a way to forget the sins of others. Finally, we have the greatest and the most powerful statement on the topic in the entire Bible. The finest, the purest, the highest example of forgiveness. When Jesus Christ hung on the cross, condemned to death by an evil man who plotted to murder him, who produced lying witnesses to convict him, as he surveyed the howling mob assembled by him, cheering that they would crucify Jesus, the Son of God, the one who knew no sin, the only true innocent man who ever walked on this earth. In his dying moments, he uttered the words that still ring across these centuries. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Those 11 tortured words sweep away all shabby excuses and they reveal the bareness of our heart. They rip the cover of unrighteousness and anger for what it is. And many of us, we say, if, if only the people who hurt me would show some remorse, some sorrow, then maybe I would forgive them. But since that rarely happens, we use the excuse to continue on with our bitterness, with our anger, and our desire to get even. And we all know that sin separates us from God. From the very beginning, the Bible tells us that when Adam and Eve sinned against God, the Bible tells us that they hid from God. It caused a separation from, from God. And so that's what sin does. It separates us from God. And the same thing happens to us when we, when we distance ourselves from people who sinned against us. Right? People who, who we don't like. You go to the quinceanera and there's someone there who, 
you despise because they sinned against you. I'm not going because she's going to be there. Christmas gatherings or Thanksgiving, is, is so-and-so going to be there? Yeah, well, I'm not going. You know, because that's what sin does. And when they sin against us, it causes disunity. Praise God. But Jesus Christ offers us reconciliation for our forgiveness of sin. And if we're going to pursue unity, let me tell you that we must forgive. And God has given us that power to forgive. See what the Bible tells us in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. He says, the most important of all is continue to show deep love for each other, for love covers a multitude of sins. See what Colossians 3 and 14 says. It says, above all, clothe yourself with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. Forgiveness is a lifestyle. It's not something you do. And we constantly have to ask God for forgiveness. Mark, you can play something. To ask God for forgiveness. In other words, we have to extend that same grace and that same mercy that God has extended to us. You know, when someone sins against us, we as believers must extend that same grace and that same mercy to others. And you can write that down. What is grace? Grace is, is, is receiving something that we don't deserve. And mercy is receiving something that we deserve but didn't get it. I don't know if that made sense. And we must extend that same grace and that same mercy to, to others. Because of our sins, we have all failed. We all deserve God's mercy. However, God offers us forgiveness through grace and mercy. That's what mercy does. And God does the same for you. Forgive others who have wronged you, for that is what God's will is for your life. Look at Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 12. Verse 2 tells us. It says, always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. I invite you to bow your heads. We hope you enjoyed this message. But before you go, we want to extend an invitation to start a personal relationship with Jesus and declare Him your God. No one loves you like Jesus, and no one will impact your life for good like Jesus will. Would you make the following prayer your prayer? Heavenly Father, I repent of my wrongdoing. I open my heart, and I want to have a personal relationship with you. I trust that Jesus died so I could be forgiven, but He didn't stay dead. He rose back to life so I could have eternal life. From today on, I will follow you, transform my life through your truth and love. In Jesus' name, amen. Congratulations! If you made that prayer, God lives in you and now you have a new life in Him. Connect to a church so your faith and love for God can continue to grow. We believe that you can find a loving and encouraging community in Day Spring Church. Come visit us. You belong here. We would love to meet you.